Welcome to Finch Talk, the weekend. <laughs> Hold on a minute. Hey y'all, would you mind typing a little bit quieter? I'm trying to record a show here. Thank you. Uh, hold on. Okay. Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. I'm Dave Robinson, and I apologize for this incessant typing. But it's just our Bench Talk staff furiously writing the scripts for our four-year anniversary special show. Yeah, we've been on the air for four years now. Plus, on top of that, that show, September 12, 2022, that's going to be our 150th episode. And on top of that, Forward Radio, WFMP, is launching their semi-annual fundraising campaign that week. So for all these reasons, we want to make that a really, really good show. So be sure to tune in. But in the meantime, we've got a great show for you today. We're going to hear some astronomy, some paleontology education, some research on agriculture and soil, and finally, climate change policy. So, since it's so noisy here, let's get started. Here's Scott Miller telling us what to see in the night sky this month. If there's one thing I don't like about summer stargazing, it is that it seems to take forever to get dark. But as we move into September, we're benefiting from being more than two months away from the date of longest amount of daylight, and night is coming on at somewhat more reasonable evening hours. By about 8.30 or so, it is time to walk out onto my front porch and see what I can see. In the early evening, only the brightest stars might begin to show themselves, but the moon is an easy target. During the first week of September, it lies over in the southeastern sky as a waning gibbous moon. Over the rest of this week, it will be a guide to the farthest of the naked eye planets, Saturn. Saturn may be the most distant of the naked eye planets, but it outshines the stars in the east-southeastern sky as darkness comes on. The moon will coast by it over the nights of September 7th and 8th, just to the right and then to its left over those two nights. The moon may be rushing to keep another appointment because by about 9.30 or so, Jupiter begins to clear the horizon. The full moon will be to Jupiter's right the evening of the 10th, and by the 11th it will be just to its left. Jupiter doesn't really need much help in being found. It is the second brightest planet visible in the sky after Venus. At present, Venus is found draped in the early light of dawn in the eastern sky. It might be glimpsed just before the sun itself rises in that same direction. So for the moment, Jupiter is the brightest planet in the night sky. Speaking of the moon, as the moon gets fuller, it will become this year's harvest moon. The harvest moon is defined to be that full moon that is closest to the autumnal equinox. The autumnal equinox is the first day of autumn here in the northern hemisphere. The sun appears to be directly over the equator of the earth, rising due east and setting due west, and in the sky appears to be crossing the celestial equator, the projection of the earth's equator on the sky. This year, the autumnal equinox is on September 22nd, and the full moon will be on September 10th. Generally speaking, the moon rises on average about 50 minutes later from day to day. Because of the geometry of the orbits of Earth, Moon, and Sun at this time of the year, 
The moon rises a bit quicker than this, getting into the sky a bit quicker after sunset. The harvest moon gets its name because it was an aid to farmers harvesting their crops in earlier times. And rising a bit quicker than the average 50-minute interval, it would provide extra light for farmers after the sun has set. A full moon is pretty to watch as it comes up over the horizon, but it can be a detriment to stargazing. High haze combined with all that moonlight pretty much wipes out the light of stars. With only the brightest to see, finding the constellation that contained those bright stars is really a challenge. With darkness coming earlier and earlier, and thus the moon as well, something else that tends to be noticed about the rising moon is its orange-red color. The cause of this coloration is the atmosphere of the Earth. Near the horizon, we are looking through a thick layer of air than when we look straight up. The more air that is between us and a light source, like the moon or sun, the greater the amount of blue light that gets scattered out of our line of sight and up into the sky. We can see that scattered blue light coming down upon us from all parts of the sky, but the light coming directly to us from a light source has had that same blue light removed. Mostly orange and red light can pass through the scattering layer of air and dust to reach our eyes, hence a reddened light source. So when we see the reddish setting sun or the reddish rising moon, it is our air that contributes to that color by removing some color and allowing other colors through. We notice it more at this time of the year because it's getting darker sooner, and we are still likely to be up and out and active, perhaps even outside. So it is more noticeable when we are more likely to be up and out and see it. As darkness continues to come, one object I like to look for each night that I'm out is the Big Dipper. That pattern of stars stands out quite easily and can also be used to find directions as darkness falls. The Dipper is low in the northwest at this time of the year, so close by trees may hide part or all of it from view, making it necessary to step around a bit to give a clear view in that direction. Once it is found, the front two stars of the Dipper, the pointer stars, provide a line in the direction of the north star, Polaris. I start with the one marking the bottom of the front of the Dipper's bowl, and imagine that line to be drawn toward the one marking the lip of the bowl. That line continues on to Polaris. Polaris is not the brightest star in the sky, but it does remain fixed throughout the year. It is at the same height above the horizon from one's location and in the same direction. With that knowledge, I know that when I step out on my front porch, the direction I am looking is generally north. One other noticeable pattern of stars can be found high overhead, even if the moon is present in the sky. That pattern is called the Summer Triangle. The Summer Triangle is not a constellation. It is what is known as an asterism. Asterisms are collections of stars that make a recognizable shape or pattern. The Big Dipper is an asterism, as is the teapot that makes up part of Sagittarius the Archer, found in the southern sky above the horizon at this time of the year. Asterisms are useful because in many instances the constellations themselves pose a challenge. Few actually look like their namesake. But if we know an asterism is related to them, the asterism may help find those elusive constellations. The Summer Triangle is made of three stars from three different constellations. The brightest and most western of the three is Vega, in the constellation Lyra the Harp. East of Vega is Deneb, in the constellation Cygnus the Swan. The southern star of the three is Altair, in Aquila the Eagle. Lyra is a small, squashed rectangle of stars just to the south of Vega. 
As a harp, one can imagine Vega being a jewel embedded in the harp, the rectangle of stars being the harp itself. Deneb marks the tail of a large swan in flight. At this time of the year, the swan is pictured flying south, appropriate as we see birds flying south as winter comes to call. Stretching south of Deneb is a line of three more stars of all about the same brightness, marking its body, long neck, and head. Sweeping out from the first star south of Deneb are a pair of stars, again, of nearly the same brightness, marking the outstretched wings of the swan. Altair marks the head or neck of Aquila the eagle. Aquila requires a bit more imagination to see, perhaps even a good star map to lay out its wings swept away from Altair and its stubby body south of that star. Planets, the harvest moon, bright stars, asterisms, and constellations. Lots to occupy the evening as summer slowly loses its grip on the sky and temperatures are much less oppressively hot. Thanks, Scott. Next, Rob Weber is going to interview Dr. Kate Belinsky of Bellarmine University about paleontology education. Take it away, Rob. A new school year will be here before you know it, and teachers will be getting school supplies ready. Pencils sharpened, books on shelves, and in some cases, a bucket of rocks. At least for teachers participating in the Waldron Shale Project, this is an education initiative that's all about letting teachers give lessons in paleontology that lets students get their hands dirty as they dig through rocks and discover the fossils within. Besides having access to the bucket of rocks, students also have access to cleaning tools, materials that help identify fossils, a digital microscope, measuring tools, and other items, all provided by the Waldron Shale Project. It's an approach to teaching paleontology that has proven popular with students. We talked with one of the founders of the Waldron Shale Project, Dr. Kate Belinsky, an associate professor in the Department of Environmental Studies at Bellarmine University. So the Waldron Shale Project is a professional development workshop for K through 12 teachers across the region. And the premise is that we offer professional development in the subjects of paleontology and geology so that teachers are better equipped to teach about these topics. And we also supply them with the materials and the resources to do an inquiry-based learning project where students get a chance to actually encounter real fossils and find them within a sample of shale that we get from a local quarry. Last month, teachers from across Kentucky, as well as a few from Ohio and Indiana, came to Bellarmine University and learned how their students can have fun while learning about fossils through the Waldron Shale Project activities. The teachers got to spend an enlightening afternoon doing the same activities their students will do. Scrubbing through rocks and identifying fossils within, their faces lighting up as they discovered brachiopods, trilobites, crinoids, and other fossils that offer glimpses of life from millions of years ago. So we've heard great feedback that the students just love the chance to get their hands dirty, quite literally, and make their own discoveries and get excited about science. It feels purposeful and also is a really fun way to encounter geology and paleontology in the classroom. 
So the Waldron Shale is a layer of rock from the Silurian period that was named for a location in Waldron, Indiana originally. Um, and you can find it across the region, but there's only certain places where it bears a lot of fossils. And one of those places is in the Sellersburg Stone Quarry, which is run by Irving Materials Incorporated. And so they allow us to obtain the fossils from that particular layer and bring it back to the classroom. There's also a citizen science angle to this too, because we're getting these bulk samples of shale that has fossils in it. We're giving it out to the schools and then the students discover what's there. We don't necessarily know what's in those buckets. And so when they discover it, they report it back to us. We can post pictures on our website and share it with everybody that's involved with the project. So we have a website that is hosted at Bellarmine University. It has all the information about um, our program and our contact information. I just encourage any teachers interested to reach out to me and inquire when we're going to open up the next registration cycle for next year. We've been doing this project since 2015, year after year, different teachers being involved. Uh, we estimate that we've had over 100 teachers now involved in the project, and each one of them has, you know, at least 30 students or so in a given year that might be encountering this, and they do it year after year. So we expect that thousands of students have now had a chance to do the Waldron Shale project. There really is like a multiplying effect of us working with teachers and them working with their students and bringing paleontology out into the real world. This project began in 2015 as a professional development outreach opportunity between myself and Alan Goldstein at the Falls of the Ohio State Park. After we did it for a few years, we applied for an education and outreach grant through the Kentucky Academy of Science and were successful in acquiring funding, which allowed us to purchase supplies that teachers could bring back to their own classrooms and really elevated the project. We also have the support from Irving Materials Incorporated, which is a, a local or regional quarrying company, and they supply us with the shale and the buckets that we distribute to the teachers. I just want to acknowledge all the different organizations that have supported this project. So the Kentucky Academy of Science, of course, and we've since acquired some additional funding from the Sam Shine Foundation. Of course, the Falls of the Ohio and the Falls of the Ohio Foundation and Bellarmine University and Irving Materials Incorporated. There's a lot of different hands in this project that have allowed us to make this really something special. If you'd like more information, check out the webpage for the Waldron Shale Project. It's hosted on the Bellarmine University website. You'll find it by doing a web search for Waldron Shale Project, and I'll spell that out for you. Waldron is W-A-L-D-R-O-N. Shale is S-H-A-L-E. So Waldron Shale Project. Check out the webpage. You'll see all sorts of info, teachers resources, potential learning activities, contact information, and some very cool photos of fossils. Reporting for the Kentucky Academy of Science, this is Rob Weber. Thanks to Rob Weber and Kate Belinsky for that interview. Now we're going to hear from Amanda Fuller interviewing Dakota Tate of Murray State University about his research on agricultural soils. Hello, this is Amanda Fuller from the Kentucky Academy of Science. I am here in the studio today with Dakota Tate. Dakota is a student at Murray State University, a junior in the agronomy program, and Dakota was one of our student competition winners at the Kentucky Academy of Science annual meeting in November 2021. So Dakota is joining me today to talk a little bit about his research. Welcome, Dakota. Thank you. Thank you. That's a pleasure to be on here. 
So, like she said, I'm a Murray State agronomy student, and one of our professors in my soil health class challenged me after I made the, you know, some people call it a mistake, but I call it an experience of saying I want to learn about soil carbon sequestration. And so we sat down and, and she helped me design, give me the broad spectrum of, of this research project I kind of took in a, in a wild direction. So we originally were just going to look at compaction, but ended up, I opened up, you know, six sites in two states, which six of the sites being in my home state of Illinois, uh, opened up six sites here on production acres and corn and soybeans and rye and wheat. And I opened up some sites down in Murray, Kentucky. And we were looking at compaction originally, but then it just kind of went into a, a snowball of we want to figure out if actual farming practices show a definitive change in soil organic carbon and what that has to do with our soil health. And ag, we do know that management practices have a wide variety of effects on soil carbon, but I wanted to put a number to that so we can decide what's more effective for our farm and in our ground and our soil health profile going forward. Okay, so you know you could measure sites over time and figure out changes with management practices. You did one sample and you were trying to correlate whether maybe a management practice was correlated with a particular qualities of the soil, right? Yes, so ma'am. I wonder if you could describe what were you measuring and what methods did you use to make those measurements? So originally we did compaction. We did compaction at seven and a half centimeters or three inches and 15 centimeters at six inches. We were going to see if what tillage practices and what rotationals of crops affected soil compaction at those levels. Because soil compaction is directly related to soil health. While we were also there, uh, we used our disturbed and non-disturbed soil methods, which we take a piece of two inch steel piping, cut it into sections about five inches long take them out and drive it in the ground. So we have a snapshot at that inch and that measurement of what the soil health looks like. Using those two systems, we compiled some soil organic matter measurements as well as soil organic carbon, which is derived from soil organic matter. So your soil organic matter is kind of part of your top soil in the profile, your soil profile O, and it is completely made up of microorganisms, crop residue, anything that can be broken down into the soil. And that's where our soil organic carbon is housed. And that's what we were going for, really, in this experiment, putting a number to that. And if folks want to see your results, I would actually point people to go over to our website at kyscience.org. If you look for our online program, you'll find Dakota Tate's presentation there along with all of our presenters' presentations. And you can see pictures of Dakota's sites. And you can also see the results in terms of the amount of carbon and the amount of compaction that that he measured in those different locations. So Dakota, will you want to describe to us like a couple of your locations, just what do they look like? And then what did you find in terms of correlating carbon and so, soil quality? I'll start with, you know, my home state, Illinois. They're all production ag fields, you know, 40 to 80 acres with a reasonable rotation of corn and soybeans. We call it post oak dirt here. Uh, it's just kind of white and fluffy, and we have some darker fields as well in this system that we ran, uh, which is based on your organic matter composition. Uh, the LS field was a prime example of what CRP ground or Conservation Reserve Program can do for soil health. It's been in conservation for a long time, 15, 20 years, but if you go in there and look, it's a no-till setting. It produced really good crops this year. 
with extremely well soil health. It's, it's organic matter was near 10%, which is almost unheard of around here, especially in the hill ground where it was at. And that was, you know, just an average of the field. You know, we had some areas that went over 12%. So looking at that, it shows you what, you know, you can do with your soil. If you leave it out, you know, you take care of it. But the only problem we found with that was, you know, it took 10 to 15 years to get to there. So we don't like to take shortcuts, but 10 to 15 years of non-production on ground, that's, that's a lot to take in. So we're looking at different management practices, different crop rotations, and seeing what we can do to get that ground there faster without taking the shortcut and taking a detriment to your soil health. We're trying to find a solution to these growers, depending on whether it be seed, it be chemical, any of that. And using this, I can quantify what we do and, and what crops recommend and what management practices to recommend. And that, that soil also held 5% carbon. So that's actual carbon that's pulled out of the air that 5% of that organic matter across that whole field is holding it, which is extremely awesome to see because organic carbon is also used by plants and they're in their growing stage. So that's why, you know, it had 65, 70 bushel beans. So very important right. to the grower to see that return. Right, absolutely. So this sort of gets back to your original interest in doing the research which is really to help farmers learn more about how to implement practices and so that we can actually get more carbon sequestration working for us as a society and for for farmers too, right? So tell us a little bit more about the bigger picture. So the big picture is whatever administration we have, this is a very, very important point to climate change. Uh, There's numbers out there and you can read a bunch of studies, but, you know, America used to be prairie grass and trees. And that carbon that was locked in the soil by those plants has been taken out, you know, whether by agriculture, you're building cities, whatever. And we've also added to that total. So it's a very important point that we need to sequester more of this carbon. And being an ag, ag is the number one industry prepared to do this today, right now. If we can quantify a economic benefit to it, and it's not going to be easy doing that. But as soon as you tell a farmer that they can make money and help the environment, it's not pulling teeth anymore. It's what can I do? How long does it take? And using these numbers, we're, we're answering those questions. We're going to put a bushel account to it. We're going to put a cost account to it. Whether they're selling these carbon credits is a new market emerging right now that my company is working heavily with. Whether we can build that market up for those farmers using their ground that they've already got in production, using the equipment they've already got and, and what they're going to grow anyways. Using those things and still making more money on the back end per acre is what's going to sell this. Regardless of what we do, it needs to happen either way. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Dakota. It's been great to hear about your research and I appreciate you sharing it with us on Bench Talk and good luck with what's coming next. Thank you, Amanda Fuller and congratulations to Dakota Tate on that award. And now it's J. Scott Miller again talking about climate change policy. Now, neither Forward Radio nor Bench Talk advocates for political parties, but we do encourage strong community discussion of the issues like this. So, here's Scott. In a report that I read in NASA's March 2022 Climate Change Newsletter, an update has been made on sea level rise along U.S. coastlines, projecting that it may be as much as 10 to 12 inches on average above today's level by 2050. That would equal the total rise seen over the past 100 years, all in less than 30 years' time. 
The report combined information from NASA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the United States Geological Survey, and other U.S. government agencies, and is titled Global and Regional Sea Level Rise Scenarios for the United States. To quote the report I read, this report supports previous studies and confirms what we have long known. Sea levels are continuing to rise at an alarming rate, endangering communities around the world. Science is indisputable, and urgent action is required to mitigate a climate crisis that is well underway, said NASA Administrator Bill Nelson. NASA is steadfast in our commitment to protecting our home planet by expanding our monitoring capabilities and continuing to ensure our climate data is not only accessible, but understandable. Why is this happening? The report also made this clear. If greenhouse gas emissions continue to increase, global temperatures will become even greater, leading to a greater likelihood that sea level rise by the end of the century will exceed the projections in the 2022 update. Let us review. Why are these greenhouse gas emissions continuing to increase? Quoting from another article appearing in the same NASA climate change newsletter entitled Steamy Relationships, How Atmospheric Water Vapor Supercharges Earth's Greenhouse Effect, it works like this. As greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide and methane increase, Earth's temperature rises in response. This increases evaporation from both water and land areas. Because warmer air holds more moisture, its concentration of water vapor increases. Specifically, this happens because water vapor does not condense and precipitate out of the atmosphere as easily at higher temperatures. The water vapor then absorbs heat radiated from Earth and prevents it from escaping out to space. This further warms the atmosphere, resulting in even more water vapor in the atmosphere. This is what scientists call a positive feedback loop. Scientists estimate this effect more than doubles the warming that would happen due to increasing carbon dioxide alone. Further in the same article, one reads, Some people mistakenly believe water vapor is the main driver for Earth's current warming. But increased water vapor doesn't cause human-produced global warming. Instead, it's a consequence of it. Increased water vapor in the atmosphere supercharges the warming caused by other greenhouse gases. Let us be clear. This is due to humans and the activities we do. Our continued reliance on fossil fuels, driven by one political party in particular denying that global warming even exists, have gotten us to this point. They focus on the short term and not on the long term, and this conservative outlook could lead to irreversible results. In addition to coastal flooding due to increased sea levels, basic physics, water expands as it gets warmer. In the April 2022 NASA climate change newsletter, one also finds in an article titled, Clusters of Weather Extremes Will Increase Risks to corn crops and society. A new NASA study shows that extreme weather events such as floods and heat waves will increasingly cluster closer in time and space, heightening the risk of crop failures, wildfires, and other hazards to society. By the year 2100, increases in heat waves, drought, and excessive rainfall combined will double the risk of climate-related failures of corn harvests in at least three 
of the world's six major growing regions in the same year, according to the study published in Environmental Research Letters. The U.S. Midwest is at the highest risk to become the site of one of those multiple harvest failures. One cannot lay the blame on one particular political party's leaders for this worsening scenario. One must lay the blame on those who put them into office, those that are easily swayed by the song they sing about job losses and inconvenience if rules to slow continued climate change are put into place. Those supposed save jobs, that lack of convenience will mean nothing if there is increased coastal flooding. If places like the Midwest suffer extreme weather events that cut down on food supplies to the U.S. and the rest of the world. It is time to stop thinking selfishly, stop voting selfishly, and to take a good, hard look at the bigger picture. Thanks, Scott. Well, that's the show this week. You've been listening to Bench Talk the Week in Science. Be sure to tune into our four-year anniversary show on September 12, 2022. It'll be our 150th episode. It's going to be great. Right, people? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Oh, yeah. You know it. Absolutely.